Good morning. How are you going? Uh, we are reading 1 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 1 and going on to verse 24. It's just such a weird time. Not long ago, we were talking about this golden time of the Israelites, and now it's all just falling apart. This is on uh, page 551 in the Black Book, in the Black Bibles, and it's up here. Elijah announces a great drought. Now Elijah, the Tishabite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few, day, next few years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Valley ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. And the, ra- and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain on the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Seraphath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, where he came to the town gate. He, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her to, her to him and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home. Do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends the rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word the Lord had spoken by Elijah. Well, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her, sorry, took her, took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this woman I am staying with because, uh, by causing her son to die? He stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, 
Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from, you, from your mouth is the truth. Thank you, Paul. And if you could have a look in your leaflet, you'll see an outline of where we're going. But we need to pray, so let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we ask with thankfulness that as we take this choice morsel of food, which is your word, we'd take it in, we'd chew it over, we'd digest it, it would become part of us and it would give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. Give us today our daily bread. Over the last six weeks, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer line by line through the eye of one Kings, which has given us really a fleshed out illustration of that which we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom of God to come. One Kings gives us a real life illustration of what this looked like once upon a time in Israel's history. Last week was particularly grim as we saw Israel descend deeper into evil. And so today's story comes as a bit of a welcome relief. But today we see God providing daily bread, not once but twice, first for Elijah and then for the widow and her son. Give us today our daily bread. And we think, well, that's, that's nice enough, isn't it? Nice story. So what? So what? Is this story a guarantee that God will miraculously provide for us when we are in need? No, though, God, of course, can provide for us amazingly. He may do so. But to say it from this story that he definitely will do it would be reading really a promise into this story, which is not actually there. And also, it would be reading ourselves into the story, equating ourselves with Elijah, whereas Elijah, in this whole narrative, stands as a unique person. He is the spokesman of God. He is the voice of God, the prophet of God, against in the middle of a nation that hasn't heard God's voice and is turning it back to God's voice. So he's a unique figure. So, of course, therefore, we have this story about God providing Elijah and the widow, their daily bread, and we think, well, what on earth do we do with it? Well, what we do is we look at the context because this story has a context, as does our prayer for daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, you'll recall, that line sort of comes in the middle of the prayer, but it's preceded by us asking God for things concerning himself. May your kingdom come. May your will be done um, on earth as in heaven. Hallowed be your name. All right, and then prayer for our needs. And then after that, there's a prayer for, shall we say, spiritual warfare. Uh, it's it's to uh, a prayer that God would aid us against sin, temptation, and evil. Forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. So what this means is that the prayer for God to supply us our needs, right, which is often what we just reduce prayer to, isn't it, frankly? No, no, no. It has a bigger context. It's a big context, and it's, it, it, it involves God's glory, um, uh, his kingdom coming in power, 
and glory forever and ever. And that's kind of the final note that we end the prayer on. That context, if you like, for that line, give us today our daily bread, is very similar to the context for this story. If you think of chapter 17 as the daily bread chapter, well, uh, it comes within a wider context of God exalting his kingdom. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, of course, the showdown, the massive moment next week in chapter 18 when there's a final contest between Yahweh and the uh, the Lord and the pagan god Baal on Mount Carmel. And then it's clear whose is the power and whose is the glory. Right now, we ourselves are back in chapter 17, where it's by no means clear at this point in the narrative um, which way things will go. And that's our lives too. We, we're not yet at the point where God has done the massive showdown where it's clear to everyone. Christ hasn't come and revealed all his glory and where it's clear that you know, people have been backing false gods, but really there's this one who's really real. That's next week. Please, by the way, bring people next week. It'll be very clear gospel presentation next week. A really good one to invite friends along to. But we're kind of before that, aren't we? Where things are murky and where there's competing loyalties and tensions. Okay. To use an AFL analogy, we're not at grand final, right? The grand final is coming and there'll be a final victor and it will be clear for everyone who wins, but we're not there yet. Where are we? We are earlier on in the season. We are at the showdown, the showdown stage. At the end of chapter 16, Ahab, King Ahab, has got the whole nation worshipping Baal. Huge support for this pagan god, right? But then when the descent into evil seems complete, without introduction, without preview, up pops Elijah, like Batman from the bush. There he is, suddenly, just appears. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead. No one knows where Tishbe and Gilead is. He just appears kind of out of nowhere. He says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, that is it. That's his message. His drought lasting years that will start when he says and it will finish when he says. This is a clear message of judgment right now we're told in james chapter 5 that elijah prayed for this now we australians we know how bad drought is all of new south wales is in a drought much of queensland is in a drought elijah prayed for drought no rain why on earth would he pray for drought because the whole nation had turned from god he was, in fact, praying in line with, what, with God's word, what God had already said. Back in Deuteronomy, chapter 16, God had said, if you turn from me and you worship other idols, I will send drought. That's God's word, his promise. Elijah knew his scriptures. And because the nation had turned against God and needed a wake-up call so that they would turn back to God, well, Elijah prays. Effectively, he's praying, hallowed be your name. God, may you be supreme in people's hearts once again. And then he invokes the promise from Deuteronomy and says, God, please withhold rain. And now in answer to that prayer that Elijah prays, he comes and confronts Ahab. There'll be neither dew nor rain in the whole land until I say so. 
You think, why on earth this wake-up call? Why not an earthquake? Why not a hailstorm, a lightning strike or something like that? The answer is because of whom they're worshipping. Israel has turned to worship Baal. Do you know who Baal is? The god of what? Does anyone know? Life. Well done. The god of rain, the god of fertility. But rain is intrinsic to this, the god of life. In other words, by issuing this ultimatum, Elijah has said, it is game on, Baal. Game on. It's time for a showdown. If you really are the god of life and of rain, it's time to play ball. Now, for Elijah's part, there's this challenge, okay? No dew, nor rain for the next few years except for my word, which is Yahweh's word because he is the servant of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And because he's announced it beforehand, the drought that comes can't be passed off as coincidence. He said it'll begin now and it's going to end when I say so. That means you can't put down this climactic abnormality as just some hiccup in the climate cycle. It happens at God's word. It's a clear showdown. And then after stepping onto the field, really, suddenly he just vanishes. He appears, he disappears like that. Uh, we're expecting the game to begin. Elijah runs off field, hides in the change room uh, because the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. We think, what on earth is God doing? Is God keeping his prophet safe, like in a safe house, you know, till things are okay for him to come out? Maybe. But we're not sure that actually his life is in danger yet. It will be later on. But Ahab's, King Ahab's wife Jezebel, who's an evangelist for Baal, she hasn't started killing off the Lord's prophets yet. More likely, God re removes his prophet as a temporary judgment on the people. You know, what's Elijah said? He said, no rain until I say so. And then God takes him out of the picture. This is a judgment on God's people where they experience the absence of the word of God. That is a judgment for there to be no word heard. So the Lord hides Elijah in a ravine and he says, you will drink from the brook and I've directed ravens to supply you with food there. Now the raven, of course, was an unclean animal for a Jew. But... All of the animals belong to God and we, he, the ravens bring him bread and meat. We can assume it wasn't Michelin star kind of food. It was probably grubs and locusts and things like that. Um, but it kept Elijah alive until he had done the work that God wanted him to do. Do you know God does want us to do work? He's, we're told that. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. From Elijah's little example here, how God keeps him alive, we realise that um, you know, God will keep us alive until we've done the work that he wants us to do and then he'll take us home. So that means if you're alive, I think you are, God has work for you to do, and he's planned for it. So Elijah had work to do, and he had to do it. Well, um, where am I up to? Uh, okay, down here. Verse 5, Elijah did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. He drank from the brook. So God provides Elijah with his daily bread. 
daily meat and daily water needs. He keeps him alive. Now, if you imagine the game, okay, Elijah's there in his locker room, change room. We're not given a camera shot into the prophets of Baal, their, their locker room. What's happening there? You know, are they being fed? Probably not, actually. Um, we've only got a window into what's happening in Elijah's locker room. But just as the Lord said he'd sustain Elijah's life, so far his word has showed itself true. It is life-giving. But then after a time, the brook dries up, right? Birds, of course, can bring meat, but they can't bring water. So Elijah has to move. And God tells Elijah, go and go to Zarephath. Do you know where Zarephath is? Anyone know? Okay, it's on the coast. It's out of Israel. It's on the coast in modern-day Syria between Tyre and Sidon. Okay, it's on the Mediterranean Sea. The point about sending Elijah there to, is that he's, God has sent uh, Elijah into Baal heartland, right? So it's really game on. It's an away game. It's not a home game for Elijah. He sent him there, and also it's a clear judgment on Israel. He sends him out of Israel. That point is not lost on Jesus, where 800 years later he's wondering why the people of his own hometown are giving him such a cool reception. And then we're told in Luke, or Jesus says in Luke 4, you know, there were many widows in, in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. And yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath, the region of Sidon. In other words, he wasn't sent to your people. He was sent to a Gentile, Gentile land. And the time that Jesus said it, this was scratching a raw nerve, right? People were still sore and bitter about what happened in Elijah's time. Because when Jesus said it, they took him up to the edge of a cliff to throw him off, <laughs> right? They were really incensed by what he said. Okay, so Elijah is sent away from his home ground, if you like, to Zarephath. The stage is now set for the first away game between Yahweh and Baal. Now, remember, Baal is meant to be the god of life, but play has begun because Yahweh has spoken. He slogged Baal with drought and famine. The game now is centred on two people on the field. There's Elijah and there's a poor widow who's gathering sticks. Elijah calls to her and says, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Now, in a famine, that's a reasonable request, but asking it of a poor widow... It's a huge ask. And also bring me a piece of bread. That, that's a very big ask. Listen to her reply. As surely as the Lord your God lives, the Lord your God, Yahweh isn't her God, but she knows that Yahweh is Elijah's God. Is she ready to change sides? Baal is meant to be the God of life, but she's close to death. Baal's lacking a lot of credibility at this point. Is he alive at all? As surely as the Lord your God lives, right? She's not so sure about Baal, but she knows that Elijah's God lives because his word has power. He's definitely alive. And so she says, all I have is a handful of flour and a drop of oil to make for myself 
and my son our last meal so that we can eat it and then die. She's not being melodramatic. She's being deadly serious. This, this is a woman right at the end of her tether and the end of her resources. It's a tragedy. What's Elijah going to say to her? What is the word of God speaking into this woman's life at this point? He says, don't be afraid. Go home. Do as you've said, but first, and then he issues her with a challenge really to believe, make a small loaf out of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Do you hear the gall in what he's saying? You know, that's a huge ask. And then he, he gives the reason, however. And in the woman's mind, it might make it worthwhile, depending on what she thinks and believes. Elijah says, because this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour, it won't be used up, the jug of oil, it won't run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And so what does Elijah give her? He gives her God's word. A word spoken specifically to her, specifically to her in her need. But the stakes, of course, couldn't be higher. What if God's word is empty? Well, then she and her son are dead. They pay with their lives. All he gives her is a word. But through it, God creates faith. If you go back in the story to verse 9, God has previously told Elijah, look, go up to Zarephath because I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. How has God directed a widow to supply her, him with food? It doesn't look like she's received a prior message from God. How has he done it? He's done it through Elijah. Through him giving her the message from God and then calling her to respond and believe. Now, it does create faith because the message that God gives is a promise. You may not have thought about it, but promises create faith. They do. Um, I want to illustrate. I'm going to make you a promise. It's not make-believe, it's deadly serious. Well, not deadly serious. Uh, next week, I am going to bake a cake myself, not Narelle. I'm not going to palm this off. I'm going to bake a cake for morning tea for everyone to enjoy, if you're here early enough. Um, that's my promise to you. Now I have to deliver. Um, right. <laughs> but now I've given you that promise. What are you going to do with it? Turn up and eat. You believe, don't you? So you had a choice to believe or not believe, but I've given you the promise. Ken, I'm going I'm to bake you a cake. And you're saying, okay, I'm up for it. He believes. Promises create faith. Elijah's given this woman a promise. Um, and it works. She believes. It wasn't fickle. God spoke. Baal, he never speaks. But God does. Facing death, she had Yahweh's promise that he would give her life. And so verse 15, she goes away and she does exactly what Elijah says. And then there's food for every day for her, Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Daily bread. Notice what the Lord didn't give. He didn't give 300 litres of oil and 40 sacks of flour to last her through the famine. He gave her just enough for one day, but a little jug 
that would not stop pouring and a little jar that never needed replenishing. That would just give and give. That meant every day needed to be an act of faith. I come, give us today our daily bread, enough for today. So in the first away game where this woman's life and her son's life was hanging by a thread, Yahweh and his life-giving word have proved victorious over Baal, who, for a life-giving God, (laughs) is in the (laughs) doghouse. But now there's a greater adversary to face because in Canaanite mythology, there is a God more powerful than Baal, the God of life, and his name is Mot, the God of death. Baal was not powerful against him. Baal could supposedly grant life to those who were living, sustenance, fertility and such like. Baal could not grant life to those under the rule of Mot, the god of death. And we say, well, that's ancient mythology. It's the same for us today. Scrap the name Mot, insert the medical definition for death. We have exactly the same issue, right? Death is all-powerful. Because no one who has suffered the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain and brainstem, including spontaneous functioning of the respiratory and circulatory systems, that's the medical definition for death, no one who's gone through that ever resumes life. Okay, death is all-powerful still. This brings us to the second away showdown. Yahweh versus, not Baal, but Mot. The God of death. Can Yahweh's life giving word be victorious where Mot and death have their hold? Here's this poor woman each day returning to her jug and her jar. She's singing, Morning by morning, new mercies I see, great is your faithfulness. One day she turns and she sees her son who's looking decidedly ill. And he soon grows worse and worse until finally, lying in her arms, he stops breathing altogether. Now, none of us can understand why God chooses to give life in one moment and take it away. For some people here, he's done that in your lives. Um, We don't know why God does this. You know, twice I've uh, rejoiced and prayed with couples who've struggled to conceive, then they have, hooray, hooray, praise God. But then on both occasions, two months and then six months later, the baby has literally died in the mother's arms through no medical reason whatsoever. Turned blue, died. I have been with the families as they've gone to view the body. You know, women breaking down. I have, I've done the funerals. We're not led into the reasoning why God does this in each particular case. But look, if this has happened in your life, there is some sort of shocking comfort to know that in the Bible, it also happens there. Uh, The Bible is very honest, very real life. Um, God can sometimes take away life to those he has just granted it to. Now, when that happens, of course, your faith in the word of God can be rattled And you can very quickly think that God is no longer on our side, as we sang before. Very quickly, we can think ourselves to blame within God's cosmic justice system. It goes like this, and the widow does it in verse 18. What do you have against me, man of God? 
Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? You know, she believed God's life-giving word. Her life had been saved, but then disaster hits. She thinks God must be punishing her because of her sin. In her words, she believes God is against her. So now she doubts God's life-giving word. Isn't that exactly how it happens in people's lives? Okay. If we were commenting on the showdown, we'd say Mott has the advantage and he's pressing forward and Yahweh's on the defensive. Elijah says, give me your son. And he, he takes this boy from her arms and he carries him to his upper room and he lays the boy out on his bed and he says, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow that I'm staying with by causing her son to die? There's, there's, there's desperation, there's emotion in these words. He's not playing games. He's not waving a magic wand. This is not magic. He's not reciting an incantation. He's desperate. He's crying out to the living God. Three times he stretches himself out on the boy as if he was saying, let my life flow through to this boy. May there be a transference of life. That happens on the cross, doesn't it? Jesus carries our sorrows and our grief and he bears it in him until he dies so that we can live. There's a transference of life that goes on. Three times Elijah cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. This is a raw and agonizing and desperate prayer. And then this is a moment in the Bible, right? This has never ever happened before. No one has been brought back to life from dead from the from dead. The Lord heard Elijah's cry The boy's life returned to him and he lived. This is a massive moment, a massive answer to prayer. Elijah picks up the child, carries him down from the room into the house, gives him to his mother and he says, look, your your son is alive. She'd known he was dead, but now he's alive. The power of the word of God. You can imagine this scene. Um, Imagine the announcement as Elijah comes down the stairs. You can imagine... Her tears of amazement and joy, you can imagine her running and grabbing her son and just holding him and holding him. And, and tears of, of joy and, and, and she's laughing but she's crying at the same time. It's, you can imagine it. But please, please hear what the woman says because this is what's really been at stake and this is the conclusion. This is the theme of the whole chapter. Last verse, verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And embedded with that word truth is the idea of dependable, reliable, faithful. It doesn't let you down, right? It's not shaky. It's not iffy. It's thoroughly reliable and life-giving. It gives life not just to the living who are staring at death, that was the first showdown, but life even to those who are already dead. That's the second. So here's the tally. You know, Yahweh versus Baal, Yahweh wins. Yahweh versus Mot, Yahweh wins. Yahweh is the victor. Does this mean, what does it mean for us? Does it mean Yahweh will raise the dead every time a widow's son dies? No, it doesn't. But this isn't just an isolated moment. You know, God has spoken to us through this story. It's not just powerful for the widow. 
It's powerful for us. His word is true and dependable. Let me show you where this story goes, and I want you to see the power of it, okay? After Elijah the prophet comes, the next prophet is Elisha the prophet. And like Elijah brings a boy back to life from the dead, Elisha brings a boy back to life from the dead. This boy dies for no reason in the same case. Like Elijah, Elisha takes the boy to his room, he shuts the door, and he cries out in prayer. And like Elijah did, he lies on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hand, and the boy comes back to life again. You can read it in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's almost a repeat, except this time it happens not in Gentile heartland, but in Israelite territory at a little town called Shunem. I want you now to fast forward 800 years to Jesus' day. Jesus comes to a town called Nain. He comes upon a funeral procession in mid-operation. There's a funeral of a boy who's the only son of a widow. Jesus' heart goes out to her. He tells her not to cry. And then he he stops the funeral. He interrupts the pallbearers, right? (laughs) They're taking him out to bury him. Stop. He speaks to the dead boy. Young man, I say to you, get up. The young dead man sits up. He begins to talk. And Jesus says, that boy is not dead. He's asleep. Life returns to the dead. The powerful word of God. People are filled with awe. Notice their response. They praise God and they say, a great prophet has appeared among us. A great prophet. Why would they say a great prophet? Because if you pull out your Bible atlas and you look where the town of Shunem is, it's on one side of a hill. Guess what's on the other side of that hill? The town of Nain. The town of Nain. You can bet that within the 800 years between Elisha's uh, miracle and Jesus' miracle, that there are lots of widows whose sons died in those 800 years. But listen to how the crowd responds in Jesus' day. It's clear that the story of what happened on their hill has been passed down generation by generation by generation. They'll remember that moment. It's folklore. There was once a prophet, a great prophet who came. He brought the dead back to life. Such is the power of the word of God to grant life to the dead. The people of Nain, to them, that story for them, it was like, it was like someone struck a match in a long, dark tunnel. And for a brief moment, light flared. And they saw what, would be, what it would be like when they emerged from the end of that dark tunnel, when death no longer reigned. For a brief moment, it fled, and then it went out. But they remembered, and they passed down the story. And then Jesus comes, and it happens again. A great prophet has appeared. You know, they knew that the word of God was dependable and life-giving and true. And this is the word of God That still speaks to us. We might still be in the tunnel. But the word of God has power. These these stories are not isolated moments. They're recorded for us so that we would have faith. Jesus said, a time is coming and has now come when when the dead 
will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And that is his promise. And promises create faith. He says, believe me on this. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's a promise that creates faith. Okay, let's go to the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to supply for us our needs to keep us alive, right? Give us today our daily bread. What's that talking about? In 1 Kings, of course, first of all, it means literal bread, doesn't it? We need bread to keep us alive. We need food so as not to starve. But then we see that there's bread and there's bread. Bread for eating, but bread which is the life-giving word of God. That's what you really need to live and to stay alive. Jesus said this, didn't he? Do you remember when he was in the desert, hungry, facing temptation? Do you remember his answer to Satan who was tempting him? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says there's bread and there's bread. You do need the bread you can eat to live, but this is what you need. This is what you really need to live. In fact, Jesus takes it a step further when he says, he is the bread from heaven. He's the bread of life. He said, by feasting on me, by believing on me every day, God grants us eternal life. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty because I'm the bread of life. And, in, and that word, whoever comes to me, it's not the idea of once off. Whoever came to me once will live. It's whoever comes and keeps on coming daily daily. Whoever comes to me, to my promises, to my word, will live. And that is his promise in death. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And guess what? The one who lives and believes in me will never die. You'll have eternal life. So in one sense, yeah, you'll die, but you're, you're asleep. And then comes resurrection. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This is his promise in death. I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, says Jesus. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. You know, when you think about what it is that you need to live to get you through a day, well, maybe you don't think about that. Because there's woolies and there's coals and, you know, there's everything at a swipe of a card. Do you ever actually pray, give us today our daily bread? Do you ever think I'm in need? Jesus does say, he teaches us to pray this daily. But what do we need to live? Well, we do need bread to eat. But we do need God's word. In fact, we need him. We need Jesus. We need to come to him each day. To feed us, to feed us God's promises, to create faith so that we'll rest in him. You know, we need Jesus. We find him in the Bible. To not have him is to experience a famine of God's word. And that's a judgment of, of God. But to have him, to have him, to come to him and eat, that is life. That is life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us all in our daily habits to come to you, to the living word, and to feed on your promises. 
contained in your word, Old Testament as it points us to Jesus, New Testament as it presents us Jesus and reflects about him. Help us to come to him, to cultivate faith, and by faith may we live. In Jesus' name, amen.